Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about how certain fonts can send political messages, why you shouldn't always go with your first instinct, and why DNA and RNA are just two of millions of possible genetic molecules. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Here's something weird. Certain fonts can send political messages. And with that, I am announcing my campaign for presidency using Comic Sans MS. Well, actually, when you listen to this research, you're going to realize why you don't want to use Comic Sans, because nobody likes it. And liking fonts is one big part of this. I like Comic Sans. No, you don't. Nobody likes Comic Sans. Fine, I'll run using Papyrus. Even worse. My running mate will be Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) All right. Well, a little while ago, a researcher at Virginia Tech named Catherine Hanshin noticed that a local political candidate used different fonts on their signs in rural areas than they did in town. As a political messaging expert, she wondered why. Was there something different about the fonts that worked best with people in the city versus people in the country? So Hanshin turned that question into a research project. She and her team surveyed more than 2,000 people to find out what they thought of various typefaces and whether they thought fonts lined up with political ideologies. Sure enough, they found that fonts can send political messages. People see fonts as having liberal or conservative leanings. And the more people think a font aligns with their thinking, the more they'll like it. So here's the breakdown. Fonts come in two basic varieties, serif and sans serif. A serif is a little line or stroke at the end of a letter. Think Times New Roman or your classic typewriter font. The stuff you see in newspapers. Sans serif fonts are the ones without serifs. So like Arial, Helvetica, or the Merriweather Sans of the Curiosity logo. Or just look at your keyboard right now. Chances are those letters are in a sans serif style. The study showed that generally speaking, serif fonts are considered more conservative and sans serif fonts are seen as more liberal. Bold type is seen as more conservative than italic type. But there are some differences within font families. For example, the highly serifed black letter typeface you usually see on the masthead of the New York Times and the Washington Post was seen as more liberal by conservative participants. Possibly because that's how they see these news outlets specifically. The important thing is that the more people viewed a font as aligned with their ideology, the more they liked it, and vice versa. Basically, this research shows that fonts have meaning, and they're not just all about looks. So as the 2020 election heats up, maybe take a closer look at those lawn signs and billboards. Design has a bigger impact than you think. All right, here's a pop quiz. When you're taking a multiple-choice test and you have second thoughts about a previous answer, should you change that answer or stick with your first instinct? Well, many students, teachers, and even test prep books would say that you should stick with your original choice. That's flat out wrong. Science says that if you have second thoughts, go back and change your answer. Now, our impulse to follow our first instinct is super strong. 75% of students and more than half of college instructors surveyed believe that changing your answer in this situation tends to lower your score. But decades of studies have shown that test takers who change answers they're unsure of usually improve their scores, not lower them. That second thought is usually right. So what's causing the disparity here? One possible explanation is something called the endowment bias. That's where we feel more attached to things we already have, like an answer that's already on the page. There's also the tendency for counterfactual thinking. 
basically thinking about how things might have been different if you'd made another choice. Getting wrong answers on a test is normal, so a wrong first choice ordinarily doesn't stick out in your memory. But when you abandon your first choice and turn out to be wrong later, you remember that is an error that almost didn't happen. The frustrating emotions attached to that memory make it more vivid, so it seems like these errors happen more often than they do. So how do you know when to stick to your guns? Well, that involves some self-reflection. A 2015 study that had students note their level of confidence for each answer in an exam found that the students had a good sense of their accuracy in the moment. But after the exam, their perception of how they had done was way off. That suggests that if you can record how you feel about an answer in the moment instead of relying on your feelings afterward, you can better judge whether to change your answer or stick to your guns. Our brains are sometimes too focused on protecting us from mistakes to see things the way they really are. But if you know that and learn ways to work around it, you and your brain can be more successful. Yeah, that 2015 study was super cool. Basically, all the students did was they rated how confident they were on every answer. And that helped them know when they went back which answers they should probably rethink and change. Like if there was one they were like, I just totally guessed on this one and they gave it like a one, then they'd be like, okay, let's let's think about it a little harder, and sometimes they would change their answer, which is much better than just getting to the end and trying to remember which ones you didn't really know. Yeah, there's enough to remember already. Yep. Good tip. Fortunately for me, I'm never taking a test again. Never say never. You just said it twice. <laughs> Ha-ha! <laughs> Checkmate. I, I failed that test. Yeah. <laughs> DNA and RNA are not the only molecules that can store genetic information. And recently, a team of researchers figured out just how many other molecules might also do the job. The answer? Scientists are going to be busy with this one for quite some time. Scientists have known for decades that DNA and a similar molecule called RNA encodes information in the particular arrangement of a handful of chemicals called nucleic acids. Those include adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine, plus uracil if you're talking RNA. That's it. These molecules basically function as chemical letters. The blueprint of the entire tree of life of every person you've ever known and every microbe that's ever made you sick is written in that handful of chemicals. But there are other nucleic acids, and there are probably other ways that they can be used to store information. Since scientists are pretty good at figuring out how chemicals can fit together to form molecules, it may be possible to use a specialized computer program to figure out all the ways nucleotides could fit together into molecules that store genetic information. So the researchers started by telling a computer how a molecule like DNA needs to be built. You need some sort of structure that uses the laws of physics to its advantage, and you need chemical components to store the data. And the whole thing needs to be built so its pieces don't collapse into one big clump or repel each other and rip the thing apart. Guess how many hypothetical molecules they found. And remember, we only know of two that exist anywhere on Earth, DNA and RNA. Did they find three more? <laughs> more. Ten? Higher. A hundred. They found 1,160,990 molecules that might be able to store information in their molecular structure. Wild, right? So what will we do with this information? Well, there are a lot of ways researchers could use it. The most important might be in medicine. We already use nucleotide analogs to treat illnesses like HIV, herpes, and viral hepatitis. 
Since the viruses that cause these diseases are made of nucleic acids, we can use medicines made of nucleic acids to stop the viruses from copying themselves and doing more damage. The new discovery is also important in a more fundamental way. It can help scientists better understand the origin of RNA and DNA, and why evolution landed on those to form life on Earth. Because as we know now, life had a lot of choices. So let's back up and go over what we learned today. Well, fonts can send political messages. Generally, serif fonts lean more conservative and sans serif fonts lean more liberal, with some exceptions. Comic Sans is my font. What's your font? Wingdings. <laughs> <laughs> Do kids even know what wingdings are anymore? I don't know. <laughs> How out of touch are we? Part 593, or however many episodes we've done. It's only going to get worse from here. It's true. And we debunked a classroom myth. You don't need to stick with your first instinct on a test. If you think you might have gotten the answer wrong, go back and change it. You'll probably do better. And we also learned that more than a million molecules may be able to store information in their molecular structure, and that could help us stop viruses and better understand how life started on Earth. Yeah, not just DNA and RNA. There's probably going to be CNA, FNA, GNA... Just keep going down the alphabet. <laughs> it's actually really hard to follow the alphabet when you're saying N-A after every letter. <laughs> the list goes on. <laughs> Next, you're going to tell me there's more than just red, yellow, and blue. I don't get that. It's the color of the pills in Dr. Mario. Really, really, uh, really good joke. <laughs> it was a really... It was a really good Dr. Mario joke. It was a really good joke. The, the best Dr. Mario joke I could have made. Because viruses. That's all, everybody. I'll trust you. Okay. Today's stories were written by Kelsey Donk, Steffi Drucker, and Grant Curran, and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Today's episode was produced and edited by Cody Goff. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious.